oftentimes the things that go without saying and the things that most need to be said. Uh, Perhaps like letting a spouse know, I like you. I really appreciate you. I'm glad you married me. You're my best friend. Or telling our kids, I'm so glad I get to be your dad. I'm proud of you. I'm glad you're in my life. We had such an encouraging prayer gathering on Wednesday. And it struck me that asking God to do things is asking for change. Are we ready? God might grow us in his grace, uh, grow us in our knowledge of him as we talked about last Sunday. He might increase our appetite for being contagious Christians. That's going to lead to change. He might increase in our church a cry for training or discipling or gathering. He might increase uh, the frequency of visitors in our homes or our home groups. He might bring people into our church gatherings and more visitors from all walks of life who inevitably will bring with them all kinds of questions and angles and expectations. New demands might come our way, and that's good if we're looking for growth that brings change. Would we be ready for the challenges brought by answered prayer? The question is then, where there, are, there may be lots of flux and unsettledness, new issues, questions, opportunities, why is it so important to guard and steward the gospel? It's the question that should go without asking, but mustn't go without asking. Why must the gospel itself be something we never drop, even when lots of other changes are going on? I remember when I was a student learning to fly aeroplanes, the instructor would often raise disturbing questions and hypotheticals. What if the engine started spluttering now, David? What would you do? Uh, One minute ago, I was happily flying, and then suddenly I'm trying to recall procedures and trying not to panic in this false scenario. Get altitude while I still have some power. Try to diagnose the engine problem if I can. Consider landing options and seeing what's around. Communicate through a mayday call and so on. One time I was getting so distracted and flustered by the process, I was losing altitude and my instructor said, David, what are you doing? We're getting very low, have you noticed? Whatever else you're doing, don't forget to fly the plane. Don't forget to fly the plane. Some things that should go without saying are the things most important to say. And so too for church, to keep flying the plane is to to keep embracing the gospel that brought us here. Today we begin a new series on 1 Timothy, but to hope to do more justice to the first 11 verses, I'm not going to give a long or even a very short introductory section as to what 1 Timothy is about, but I instead point you to the excellent um, 1 Peter home group material. There's a pile of them printed over there. If you're in a home group, feel free to take them. If you're not in a home group, also feel free to take them. They will also come in soft copies uh, during the week. So let's then dive into the letter. And if you're following in the outline, point one, why the gospel needs guarding, verses one to five. A friend of mine was sharing a little proudly how he was just a few steps away from a CEO in a multinational firm in Australia. I report to someone who reports to someone who reports to the CEO, he was telling me. Now, exciting on one level, perhaps so trivial, next to 
what Paul is saying here. Paul represents not a CEO, a prime minister, or a president. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. It doesn't get any higher than that. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He seems to have direct access to the God of the universe. There's a lot to unpack there. Paul was commissioned by the God of the universe for a mission of, as we might expect, unquantifiable, eternal proportions. Though the church may seem unassuming, tucked away in this dark building on this corner in Dremoyne, it may seem a curious irrelevance to the world. The things of eternity flow to the world through the church. We're intimately related, joined with God himself. One of my kids this week had a sighting of Jerome Luai. It's very exciting. The Penrith Panthers, a New South Wales footballer. But Paul had a sighting of the risen Lord Jesus, the author of life the one to which football and footballers and everything else owes its existence. And so Paul writes, Paul, a commissioned messenger, an apostle, a sent one of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus, notice, our hope. Christ Jesus, our hope. It's not language I would normally use. I don't know about you, but interestingly, later in chapter 6, Paul will urge the wealthy not to put their hope in wealth, which he says is so uncertain compared with God, but he says to put their hope in God. Christians and churches are blessed to have a hopeful life, a life as hope-filled as the risen Lord Jesus merits. In a despairing world, crying out for hope, for purpose, for significance, for a reason to live, let alone reason for joy, Our privilege is to invite people to a gathering that sings with head and hearts, on Christ the solid rock, I stand. We live with unshakable confidence when Jesus Christ is our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, verse 2, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. So the lines of authority here go very directly from the God of the universe to Paul the Apostle, to Timothy the missionary pastor. Paul is saying here, with the troublemakers in the Ephesian church also reading over his shoulder, this is a letter to Timothy, but it was never meant only for Timothy to read. You can see sometimes Paul uses you in the plural, uh, addressing more than just Timothy. Paul is saying here, I'm Paul, verse 1, and I'm humbly, truly speaking with God's clear and supreme authority. And I call this missionary pastor my true son in the faith. Not true because he's genetically my son, but true because he's, as we saw in the book of Acts, he's shown himself to be true through some very rough testing and persecution for holding out this gospel. He served alongside me. He sees things God's way and my way when it comes to the faith. And so he calls Timothy my true son in the faith. Be nice, wouldn't it, if Paul might look at us and think of you and me in the same way, wouldn't it? My true brother or sister in the faith. 
He is a true disciple. She knows the Lord. He's got his head screwed on. She knows what matters and what doesn't. In Timothy's case, he says, I'm sending him to you. I take it so that he's got some of Paul's authority behind him. And so Timothy, through this personal but public letter to be read in the churches, Paul's saying, I'm personally and I'm publicly endorsing you, Timothy, in God's name. I encourage you and I pray for you and with you with the words in verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And verse 3, I also want you, the Ephesian church, to know your mission among them. Paul's letter models here, I think, too, interestingly. Um, it's a good model for Christian leaders on how to be directive in a church, on the one hand, in matters of discipleship and where there's call for sacrifice, without being, on the other hand, a manipulator, a dictator, a pastoral bully using God's name or authority to do so. So Paul will issue a command to those harming God's church, but verse 3, he does so by urging this fellow student, uh, servant. I urge you, I exhort, appeal, encourage It's a favourite word of Paul. He uses it 54 times throughout his letters. Verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may, and here's where the verb gets stronger, so that you may command certain people. Paul doesn't name these certain people. He refers to these certain people a few times. He doesn't name them, I take it. It could be for either not wanting to promote their cause or not wanting to humiliate them and make repentance more difficult but command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Uh, We saw just in last week, didn't we, in in recent weeks, distortions, myth-like, false doctrines, untruths threatening the churches in 2 Peter, and here we go again, this time with endless genealogies thrown in. This could be an academic-level Jewish discussion a debate going on in which which was at the very least distracting, if not false, in what they're concluding in their doctrines. Um, as a pastor, I've had a difficult situation before where um, in the Presbyterian system we have a presbytery made up of elders and pastors and they provide us an accountability over each church so that no one pastor or elder or church can go too far off track. That's the idea. But we had to decide to stand a pastor down in one of our Presbyterian churches. He was in many ways a good and faithful guy. He wasn't officially ordained, but um, was a Baptist pastor filling in in a Presbyterian church uh, while it was vacant. The problem was that he just kept banging on about baptism and how infants shouldn't be baptised. and So he's bringing unnecessary confusion in a church that wasn't overly interested or concerned about baptism until he started preaching about it. He was a good pastor, he was a friendly, um, uh, sorry, good preacher and a friendly pastor. He would, would have got on fine if he just kept on preaching the Bible, which doesn't mention infants being baptised or not baptised, but he refused when we repeatedly asked him, can you stop creating an issue out of this? It wasn't an issue, it doesn't need to be, but he wouldn't. And so the shame and the waste and the division between those who agreed and those who disagreed in his church and then outside as well. 
Peter tells uh, clear-minded Timothy to ensure this gospel of all things is well stewarded in the Ephesian church, well guarded. Or as the NIV puts it there in verse 4, that the truth, this truth that advances God's work, that's where you're to stay, Timothy, not in this other stuff. And so if you're someone who has a view of things that isn't commonly shared by the godly church folk around you, it may not be as important as you think. If it's a pet topic that frustrates you and reduces your fruitfulness, it may be you'd be much better off letting it go. As we were told in Bible college, if you've got a hobby horse, it's good for you to know what it is and to put it in the stable for a couple of years. So too, if you've got a hobby horse, why not just put it away for a couple of years and see what happens? It's not as though the things frustrating you are changing anyway. And you might feel much more settled when you drop your angles and your wishes about the church, doing what you are convinced they should but aren't. Let's just let Jesus and the gospel matter more for you for a little while. If that's you, and if there are frustrations, by the way, I'd be really happy to have a conversation with you about that and how we might be able to help. Because of the problems caused by the agendas in Ephesus, however, Paul urges Timothy not to urge but to command those creating distraction or distortion to cease and desist. This is a strong word, command. Charge those engaged in these sideshows to stop. Because what isn't clear to all is getting in the way of a clear gospel. To use the words of the NIV in verse 5, we in the church are to advance God's work. And God's work comes not through factional angles about lesser things, but through gospel-induced faith. The gospel isn't divided or hard to trace out. It doesn't owe itself to the convictions of the few among us. No, it's the received, it's the clear revelation of God for the whole church to together embrace. So Paul writes, such things provoke, promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, or as the ESV puts it, rather than the stewardship from God, the guardianship, which is by faith. So if you aren't most enthused by the simple gospel truths which enthuse our kids at Kids Church then it's you who is on the wrong track and not the kids. Know God through his son, Jesus, and trust him come what may. That's it. Unite around that. And so to be evangelical is a, a badge we want to intentionally keep. The evangel is the gospel. Evangelicals hold the gospel to be central. And we don't do this just because we happen to like the gospel, but because we see scripture insisting that we do so on every page. The Old Testament prepares us for it. The New Testament excitedly delivers it. But God our Saviour, Jesus our hope, stewardship, faith, fellowship, and next verse 5, a love that's so alien to the world but so central and distinctive in the church. Love is where all of this has been heading for Paul, who writes in verse 5, the goal of this command to, do, to restrain these distracting people is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I don't know if you've noticed, but those with agendas and angles, uh, angles that they want to push in churches 
tend to be unhealthy spiritually. It's hard to be really frustrated about things and joyful at the same time. Uh, There may, by the way, be reasons for grumpiness. There may be reasons for change that is needed. But they tend to be, and I could say we tend to be, when we're in that situation, stern or grumpy, distrusting. Uh, They can have a critical spirit which spoils joy and sours conversation. In place of gratitude week by week are suggestions for change. And dissatisfaction can make them cagey, quite independent and unknowable. Or at other times, there might be a certain charm on the surface, but insincere. Something is getting in the way of fellowship, of being able to simply accept those around them. And sometimes they find it harder to love those inside the church than they do to love those outside the church, where they have no such frustrated expectations. A gospel embrace will bring with it humble love. A love that, verse 5, warms people up and purifies them from within, a pure heart. A love made possible by a clear conscience. That is, nothing to hide from God or to be ashamed about with each other will strengthen our relationships with each other. Or a love that flows from a sincere faith. As we trust God, we're free to love fellow sinners better. So if you've made church or Christianity too complicated, this might be wonderfully liberating and refreshing. If you remember days gone by when you were more on fire than now and loved the church more than you do now, it may be this critical spirit has taken too much room. And this, I take it, besides life changes that might be going on that just make Christianity and so on more exciting in our youthful days, for example, there may be life stages going on, but Here the gospel is where your relief is found and where your refreshment and your joy can be renewed. Second then, verses 6 to 11. Why a gospel focus beats a law focus. Here Paul seems to zoom in on one of the issues going on in the church. We saw there was an odd preoccupation with Jewish genealogies. I don't get overly excited about genealogies, but I guess some people do. We saw it in verse 4, and in verse 6, the nature of the distractions and angles also relate to the Old Testament. Some have departed from these, that is, from these things, a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, central things, and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law. So some motive coming out there. And I imagine when Paul thinks about that, Saul, who used to be a Pharisee, one very well educated in the law, This must be ringing an alarm bell for him. Why would people in the church want to take the church back to have a law focus? And he was absolutely qualified to assess what they're doing. Verse 7, they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So one, they're focused on the wrong thing and two, they're really bad at it. It seems the problems in verse 7 include what they teach how they go about it, their their arrogance or their confidence in their false views, and also the fruit of the teaching which lacks the love that should be central in church life. It might be like me trying to explain how nuclear fission works to a nuclear physicist. The more minutes I have for my explanation, the more my ignorance would reveal itself. 
In fact, it wouldn't take a minute. But it's more excusable and far less destructive to play around with nuclear energy than it is with the gospel. The problem always facing the church is that it isn't vigilant. If it isn't vigilant, and Christians are too nice, um, too silent, or lack Paul's and Peter's uh, and Timothy's now um, motive and, and conviction to address false trails, then false teaching and false emphases can become systemic. False teachers can become elders, as they are in many places around Australia. False teachers can become ministers and priests and archbishops and popes. And so the fallout from this for eternity is beyond calculation. Just imagine if the global church simply lovingly preached the gospel. What a transformation that would bring around the world. If church leaders were, as God calls them to be, guardians of the gospel, driving through Haberfield recently and, and saw in a Catholic church they had um, the Alpha course being advertised. And I thought, great, there might be the gospel being central in that place. But verse 8 we read, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. It's a play on words. The law is good if one uses it lawfully, more literally. That's good stewardship. If you're to use the law, it seems apt to use it lawfully, says Paul which, by the way, leads in the same direction as the gospel, toward loving God, loving your neighbour, a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. We also know, verse 9, that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. What does Paul mean by this? When I read this, I was stumped for a little while. I kept digging, kept digging, because we as God's people do find ourselves enriched by the law. It is God's word continues to be valuable to instruct us. I think what Paul's getting at is that loving God and neighbour should be enough for us. But Israel needed the fitting punishments for all kinds of unloving behaviour. All the compensation laws, all the consequences, the punishments had to be described. The law's function for Christians who have new hearts will be limited Not only do we live by the law of the Spirit now, as Paul explains in Galatians, and we have a new charter of Christian ethics. It's very simple by comparison to the old. But the limits and the consequences in the law were intended for ancient national Israel. They are instructive. They are appropriate old wineskins that fulfilled an important purpose and still teach us much if we read them in that light. Next, Paul lists some of the most shocking behaviours forbidden by the law to make his point about how to, out of touch the laws should be to us if we're regenerate, regenerate righteous Christians. And by the way, in Romans 3, Paul says the purpose of the law is, is to show us the crookedness of our own lives, to point out sin to us. But the righteousness that comes from God is by faith. And so for right, people made righteous, for Christians... The law was to restrain, verse 9, by contrast, lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, four strong pairs. Now, it could be compared with the Australian confusion at the moment about consent in relationships and sexual relationships. 
and so on. These consent laws that we hear on the radio or in our newspapers, in a sense, can have little impact on Christians who are told by Scripture and the law of the Spirit and, and love to love each other and to give consent sexually through a permanent cherishing I do. Um, the Bible calls us to marriage, which makes a lot of the consent discussion quite minimal. It's put into the background. Important though it might be for our society to have rules like this. Marriage is so much better. It calls us to commit, to love, and to honour this precious human being. Marriage makes the consent confusion seem so debased, so lost, painful, avoidable, sad. In verses 9 to 10, Paul then pulls examples from commandment 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 from the Ten Commandments. Honour your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness. All sub-Christian commands, in a sense. We need not be touched by laws, verse 9, for those who kill their fathers or mothers. Surely that's beneath Christian to do. But Exodus 21 says it. Or for murderers, for the sexually immoral, which includes all kinds of uh, sex outside of monogamous marriage. For those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, So that's a form of stealing, trafficking of children and people and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. That is, the gospel isn't at odds with the the law. The, The heart of evil that required the law is the evil that's overwhelmed by the gospel. And this gospel, by the way, says Paul, is not my invention as though it's up for debate, should we go with the gospel or should we go with a mix of other things? But Paul says there in verse 11, this is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And so Paul brings us back again to being guardians of the gospel, a message entrusted to Paul, to Timothy, to the church leaders and to disciples in our day. In this gospel we are brought into the glorious presence of God Jesus still loves us this we still know for the Bible still tells us so people have guarded this gospel for us and we're to guard it still we grow in the gospel but we're never to grow out of it and so as we pray for God to do great things in and around us There may be external and internal pressures to move away from Jesus and the gospel. Unlikely, though, that might seem. So if I or the elders or pastoral team seem a little bit staid, if we seem to hasten slowly, if we're a bit less adventurous, a bit less progressive or a bit less traditional than some might like, do feel free to talk to us about that. And do help the conversation by coming with a heart for the gospel and a heart for the church. The goal of this command, says Paul, is after all love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You know, Australia has benefited so much from the gospel and from a a Judeo-Christian heritage. But I remember the huge contrast we found living in Mongolia between a 
Christianized nation or a post-Christian nation or a, a Christendom nation with one that didn't have that. Um, you'd walk out of the literally harsh winter of Mongolia and into the warmth of a church building. But what was happening physically was also reflected spiritually. Moving out of the, the harsh Mongolian culture that's learned not to, dis, not to trust people, um, to be dobbed into the secret police, um, not to treat humans as having any inherent worth. And you walk into the church and there was this great warmth of fellowship and acceptance and love and forgiveness. The forgiven people of God were united in the gospel, ready to love one another, ready to trust one another like Mongolians had never done before. May this be also the case for our gatherings at VPC. Love of God as we embrace and guard the gospel. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for the glorious gospel which has saved us and which others have passed on faithfully to us. We thank you for its simplicity, that the smallest of children can understand it, and yet theologians can wade in its depth, its profundity, its goodness and the wonder that the God who made us could become one of us in order to save us that we could be created all along for the purposes of a new creation. We thank you for this good news that's far beyond human construction. And we pray, Lord, that we'd be those who guard it, uh, that we'd be those ready to love our neighbour in the process, to love the world around us. But, Lord, not to so love the world that we compromise your truth. Father, if there is anyone struggling here today from this message, we do pray they might be able to speak to someone, process things in this community, and that we'd be a community too of grace where sins can be owned and repented from. Lord, as we seek to um, forgive others as we've been forgiven. And so guide us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.